thanks for downloading and welcome to Take Orally, the podcast from Dream Queen's Medical Centre at Nottingham. This episode is a live recording of the fifth session of Unblinding Research on how clinical guidelines are made. As ever, all information is correct at the time of recording. Any and all guidelines mentioned are correct for Nottingham University Hospital's NHS Trust. Other trust guidelines may vary. All views and opinions are the speaker's own. Right then, so welcome back to uh, Unblinding Research. Um, apologies that last month's session can go ahead. Uh, so that's now being held today. Uh, for anybody who wants to mention us on Twitter, the hashtag is Unblinding Research. And there's the, uh, the Twitter handles for Dream uh, and for our lovely research team. Thank you very much for coming and your help with this session. Uh, once again, as ever, this is a, a safe zone. Please feel free, guys, to talk. And uh, if you have a question, put your hand up and to, to make a point. Um, and uh, as I said, it's nice and friendly. Uh, if you want to say anything, just put your hand up. Um, so, on previous sessions, if you remember way back when, in our very first um, session of unblinding research, we looked at an introduction to research, the research method. Uh, we used the example of, of uniforms uh, with ED nurses, and um, we looked at you know part of that research method. We would have to do a literature review. We'd have to think about what outcome we want, and then that outcome um, will guide us with our method. We then uh, had a look at formulating a, a clinical question, a research question, and uh, we thought about PICO. Uh, what does P stand for? The population, yep. I is, uh, stands for intervention, brilliant, yep. C, control, yep. And O is our outcome, yeah, okay. Uh, first used in the 18th century when we were studying uh, the effects uh, of uh, citrus fruits and how they can prevent scurvy. Yeah, uh, bonus question, who, who uh, do you know who invented the, the quality improvement project? So it was Florence Nightingale. She invented the quality improvement project. She also invented uh, the pie chart. Uh, so after thinking about PICO, we uh, had a session on ethics. Uh, we talked about a tale of two cities. And we looked at uh, Nuremberg and Helsinki uh, declarations. We had a talk about uh, GCP and how to get ethical approval. And then in our last session, we looked at types of trial uh, and we had a go at uh, designing a randomized trial um, using the, the medium of sweets. We are not sponsored by Maynard, sadly, um, but we had a, a talk about how you would go about doing a randomized uh, trial looking at um, comparing uh, Maynard's wine gums to uh, generic wine gums. So that leads us on to our scenario today, how are clinical guidelines produced? Um, I think we all use clinical guidelines every day. I think a common one that spring, immediately springs to mind are the nice CT head guidelines. How many CT heads do you, you know do you uh, do you request? Yeah, eight a day. Yeah, I reckon, if, especially if you're in a, in, a um, in IAU, if you're at the front of the department, you're going to be seeing uh, a lot of patients. You're going to be requesting a lot of CT heads because you follow nice CT head guidelines. Um, pickup rates probably very very low. 
you know, I, may, I wouldn't be surprised if I get one positive finding for every 100 CT heads that I request. If, I were, if you're a GP with different guidelines and a, and a different uh, uh, patient group who comes to you, um, you've probably got an, a, a higher rate of pickup because you do fewer CT heads. So in this session, we're going to um, understand levels of evidence and quality of evidence. Um, in particular, uh, meta-analysis and systematic review. We're going to have a chat about how, why they're so good. We're going to understand the role and limitations of evidence in, in developing clinical guidelines. Uh, and there's advantages and disadvantages to, to using guidelines. And we're going to have a think about NICE and how they make guidelines. So first up, um, we're going to have a, a bit of group work. So in, in your groups, uh, you've got some made up studies that I've put in front of you, uh, all about nurses and suites. Uh, what I'd like you to do is rank them. So there are seven studies there. I'd like you to rank them from the uh, lowest level of evidence, it's the least useful, up to the highest level of evidence. You know, um, the more useful the evidence is. Okay. Um, because as with, uh, as with computer games, there are levels of evidence. So to inspire you as we're going along, I'm going to put in the Super Mario Brothers theme tune. Okay, so if you want to have a discussion and just rank those studies from the lowest level of evidence to the highest level of evidence. Right then, so levels of evidence. So if we look at our absolute lowest level, this is our PlayStation 1, right there at the bottom. Yeah, I still have mine too as well. Yeah, absolutely. I've not used it in, well, well over a decade, but I still have it somewhere. Um, so yeah, so the 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 bottom level is the opinion piece. So we present an article written by the RCN president, who argues that research nurses should be given free suites as a sign of goodwill, which will undoubtedly cause their recruitment to studies to go up. So that's an opinion piece. It's somebody of good standing who's written a piece, um, but it's just their opinion. Okay, opinion pieces may include some research in them. They may quote other uh, other studies, uh, but should always be taken with a pinch of salt okay um, and then after that is our case report yeah so we report the case of a research nurse who after being given three wine gums a day as well as their normal lunch increased their recruitment to studies by 24 percent so case reports how useful are they well the, as we said they're low down they're, they're interesting as leon said because they can identify new trends okay so hiv and aids as we we now know first spotted back in 1983 uh, was a case report, the Morbidity and Mortality Weekly Report from the CDC uh, noticed that a group of homosexual men uh, were suffering from a rare form of pneumonia and from that uh, was the first identification of, of, of that there was this potentially this new disease which we, was then went on to become HIV and AIDS. So they serve an educational purpose, they're not generalizable and they may focus on the rare. Okay, uh, as we've all been, I'm sure, to, to conferences where they like to go, this rare case of this came up and it's useful, it's interesting, but actually how useful is it going to be? 
Um, and then so after that we're on to our PlayStation 2. Okay, and so now we're, we're into our case series. So this is our study into access to suites and research nurse retainment. Ten research nurses began working at, in our department in May last year. They each received a free bag of wine gums on arrival. A year later, six of the nurses remain in post. So case series look at patients with a known uh, exposure. So that could be a treatment, it could be a vaccination, uh, it could be an education program, but you've done something and then you follow them up. Okay, there's no comparison. So they don't have a control. So that's why they're low down uh, here. Um, Following on from there is our case control. So this was an example of a case control study who you have a known outcome. So this could be a disease, this could be death, etc. And you look back and you want to see, well, how, what was different about that group and a similar group? Okay, so you're basically looking to see the relationship between a risk factor or an exposure and that um, they're quicker and more useful for initial studies in rare diseases because we know the outcome has occurred. Um, but they're retrospective, like all studies that are retrospective, there is recall bias and they're not good for diagnostic tests because we know the outcome already. Uh, and above, just above them, but still within this uh, PlayStation 2 realm, we have our cohort study. So we report our study into research nurse intake of sweets. We compared a group of research nurses to a group of educator and staff nurses. We found that research nurses eat on average 3.4 sweets more for each than education nurses and 1.2 more than staff nurses. So this is a cohort study because you're looking at a group, i.e. a cohort, and you're following them through prospectively. Okay. And then you can assess the effects of, of certain factors in particular outcome. Uh, participants in the group can be matched with a subject in another group to try and limit variables as much as possible. So if you know that you have a patient from a certain ethnic background in your research group, you can make sure that that is a nurse with that, research, with that ethnic background in your educator and in your um, staff nurse group as well that you're looking at. If you know you've got a smoker, you can make sure there's a smoker in the other groups as well. Um, that then tries to limit variables as much as possible. Um, they are easier to carry out than randomized control trials. Um, there is no randomization though, they do take a lot of time um, and they are susceptible to confounding factors. Okay. So they're all our sort of PlayStation 2 level. So PlayStation 3 level, this is where we're into our randomized control trials. Okay. Uh, we present our study into suites and uh, research nurse recruitment to studies. Uh, we compared Maynard wine gums to an identical tasting placebo. We randomly allocated 100 research nurses into two groups of 50. One group had Maynards every day, while this, the other group had the placebo. Neither the uh, um, participants or study staff knew the allocation. The main R group recruited 12% more patients to study. So this is, as I said, is a randomized controlled trial. These randomly assigned participants to either the treatment or the placebo group. Blinding is usually involved. Um, they're expensive. Uh, but they are considered the gold standard if you're doing a single clinical trial, um, but they can't prove causation. Okay. And as we talked before, and we'll talk again in, in later sessions, you can have single, double, triple blinding even. 
And so finally that leaves us with our systematic review. They are our PlayStation 4 uh, when it comes to um, uh, levels of evidence. We report our study to determine the optimum suites for research nurse productivity. We performed a literature review, critically appraised 200 randomized controlled tri uh, studies of suites and research nurse productivity. We find that the Maynard's wine gums are the superior suite. And yet again, Waynard's still not funding us, but maybe eventually. Um, systematic reviews are an exhaustive review of the current literature. They take less time than a new study, and the results can be extrapolated more broadly than if you have another study. Um, as I said, though, they are very time-consuming, and not all studies can be combined. So why are systematic reviews and meta-analyses so good? So these are our top level. And that's where you're going to see these two guys and, and you can hear these terms that are used, systematic reviews and meta-analysis. Systematic reviews, this involves a panel of experts who, you know, you can have uh, doctors, nurses, various different backgrounds all looking and they are assessing many, many, many papers in a similar way that you guys have done. They're looking at the evidence. And um, from that, they try and find uh, an exhaustive summary of that current evidence. So this is where we're at at the moment. And you can have uh, systematic reviews of cohort studies. You can have systematic reviews of case control studies. Okay, Each time that is better than that particular type. A systematic review of a particular type of study is better than that type of study in itself. Meta-analysis, this is a... This assumes that there's a common statistical truth between studies and you look at the, the quantitative data that there is between those studies uh, and you apply statistical methods to find the common truth amongst those. So if you've got one paper that says 30%, one says 40%, one says 60%, you're looking at those and you're trying to find the, the common truth. And so these are two very, um, very useful types of study that are used in particular in, in when we're producing guidelines. So a major source of guidelines is this group, the Cochrane Group, if you all, yeah, you've all heard of the Cochrane Group. So the Cochrane Group are a major source of guidelines. Um, they employ 37,000 doctors and nurses, okay, specialists in their field to come in and they look at papers and they come up with, uh, they look at research and they come up with guidelines. And the way they do that is to, first of all, think of a problem with something broad like PE try and narrow down the scope. So what is our actual question? So the diagnosis of PE in A&E, for example. And then from there, that's when you're starting to look at the evidence. You're balancing it up. You're looking for bias and trying to overcome that. You're looking at the limitations. You're rejecting some research because it's rubbish. You're accepting others because it's really good. And you have a bit of a debate and you can write up your research and write up your recommendations and you can then debate that and you can start again if you need to be. This is a very dynamic process. And then finally they publish. And then once it is published, it's out there in the domain. And then after a few years, they will reevaluate it and look at it. Okay. Going through that process, like Lucy said, you could at any point decide, hang on, we need to do more research and jump in and, and say, well, we need to do some uh, a randomized control trial, for example, because we don't actually know enough at this point. A major uh, measurement that we use, particularly when we're looking at, at for guidelines and for a for a new treatment, is the quality. 
have you all heard of the quali? So that's a quality adjusted life year or quali. Yeah, you've, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, so this will be part of the, the research trials. Um, one year of perfect health is one quali. Okay, and um, Leon asks how we uh, how we measure perfect health. We'll we'll have a, a look at that in in, a, uh, in the next slide. So one year of perfect health is one quali. Death is zero. So a quali is measured somewhere between zero, which is death, up to one, which is perfect health. Okay. If you have one year of perfect health, that's one quali. One year of half perfect health, that's half a quali. Two years of half perfect health is a quali overall. You see, you see how it measures. So it's, it's not about the length of time that you get. It's about uh, the, the quality of that. And, and therefore, it's important because it works out as how much money we're spending for each quality, quality that our treatment is giving. Okay. And this then becomes very, very important when we're thinking about preventative measures as well. So the model that we look at when we're measuring, yeah, you've heard of this one as well, Megan. Yeah, absolutely. So it's the the EQ5D model. Okay, so there are different models used for looking at measuring quality of life, but the EQ5D is one, and it looks at those five domains that you were just talking about. So yeah, absolutely. So yeah, so number one is is mobility. How mobile is our is is the patient? Number two, um, self-caring, so the personal hygiene, um, essential activities. So going out, doing their shopping, cleaning, etc. Um, pain is the absence of pain. And then finally, um, anxiety and depression, whether they're free from that. If you think about it, that gives quite a nice rounded view of a, of a patient's overall well-being. And that can be measured through a questionnaire as well as an objective study uh, being done by somebody in the, in, in the trial to look at them. Okay. So if you tick all those boxes, you are therefore in perfect health. If you are in perfect health for a year, that is therefore your quality. Okay. And that's important because if we look at the, this graph, patient A has spent 40 years and then died suddenly, but they were four, within those 40 years, they've had perfect health. They've had 40 qualities. Our patient B has lived double the length of time um, to be 80, but they've spent that whole time in half perfect health. So they've still got 40 qualities. So it's not about our length of time. It's our um, it, it's uh, the quality of that. But yeah, ex exactly. It, it is a it is a bit slightly controversial, um, but you know, if you save a patient's life, but they are spending, you know, if you save a patient's life and they are on a ventilator for five more years before they die, uh, you know, it's a useful way of going. Well, I've given you five years extra life, but those five were on a ventilator. You know, yeah, that's the that's the useful thing with the quality. And so here we can compare our patients with a treatment, getting 79 qualities, patient without the treatment, getting 66 qualities. So we can say that we have given our patient with treatment um, 14 extra qualities, sorry, 13 extra qualities than our patient uh, without the treatment. And then that's useful because we can look and say, well, how much money did that cost? Uh, and uh, when it comes to writing up guidelines and recommending treatment, that's important. 
So like Leon said, guidelines are only really a starting point and whenever you read guidelines it always says at the bottom clinician suspicion can overrule at any time and a guideline is only good if we properly use it okay PE guidelines for example are a minefield to follow um, and you have to have an understanding of the evidence behind it otherwise it becomes difficult fever pain this is a new guideline that, that's been brought out it used to be the centaur criteria it's now fever pain this is looking um, if you have a patient who has shortness of um, who has a sore throat how likely is it that that patient has a bacterial infection that you then have to um, uh, give antibiotics to um, basically it gives you a score out of five uh, so if you think you've got a patient who's got five out of five I think okay you've definitely got a streptococcal infection I need to give you antibiotics but actually if you only have five if you have five out of five and you read the literature you only have a 65% chance still of having a bacterial infection so four and a half patients out of every ten you see uh, if you if they have a uh, fever pain of, of five four and a half of them still will have a viral infection and don't need antibiotics so as I said guidelines are only as useful as if you understand them and uh, have a good thing about them and like I said they always put that bit at the bottom get out of jail free uh, your uh, suspicion overrides this at any time so nice so this this link will take you the, the previous link will take you to the the Cochrane page where they go through how they create guidelines this link will take you to the the nice guidelines and, and how they produce them Dr Simmons one of our consultants here was recently part of the group that was looking at sepsis uh, guidelines and, and we've, we've podcast on that previously um, they follow very much the same uh, route, uh, routine as the Cochrane group do so they look at you know, they look at a problem they narrow it down what is our question they look at the evidence they reject they accept they may do more studies themselves they then go out they, they write up uh, their they draft their recommendations they'll go through a few iterations of that before they eventually publish and again they'll, they'll always come out with publication with a review date okay and that's the important thing with guidelines is that review date so we can have departmental we can have trust we can have national we even have international guidelines there should always be a review date to look back and has practice changed has evidence changed that actually challenges that um, and, and that is a crucial part of the process so a bit like playing Tetris you have to juggle these different sized bits of evidence and trying to fit it together to come out uh, with uh, an overall picture when you're producing guidelines so just to give you an idea of what that's like I've invented a condition called Maynard's disease so this affects research nurses who don't eat enough wine gums uh, I want you to imagine that you are a committee formed by uh, the NUH Trust to create guidelines to protect research nurses from Maynard's Maynard's is an acquired condition affecting research nurses who do not get enough wine gums however wine gums are expensive and they contain a lot of sugar you want to create UK guidelines for the right number of wine gums needed to prevent Maynard's disease whilst not causing harm to your nurses look at the evidence below create your guidelines um, just have a look at them uh, and have a think would you follow that piece of guidance would you not and sort of inspire you we've got the Tetris music <laughs> the quicker you uh, get through the, the quicker it will finish 
Yeah, so like Lucy said, uh, uh, so a systematic review of RCTs in Japan, you know, recommended uh, five wine gums a day, which reduces Maynard's by 20, uh, 65% with 10% diabetes. Um, you know, people in Japan have a different diet. Is it necessarily a representative group? Um, and so can, is that transferable? Exactly. So, you know, they may have a, a much healthier diet than we do over here in the West. A uh, research unit in Leicester gave their nurses 10 wine gums a day for a year. None of them have developed Maynard's disease or diabetes. And like Leon said, that, you know, we don't know... You know, anything else about these nurses they could have been you know all uh, triathlon um, athletes um, all very fit uh, and they've only looked at them for a year and we don't actually know how many nurses they've got and that's the same thing for these um, randomized controlled trials down here a single blind randomized control trial in the UK uh, or a double blind randomized control trial again you know the UK is a very diverse area we don't know you know were these in a deprived area where there is more likely to be disease were they in the you know in an affluent area uh, where it's less likely to be have um, these diseases a research unit in London has looked back on all their nurses employed in the past 15 years. Their nurses who developed Maynard's ate on average two wine gums a day or fewer. No nurse who ate four or more wine gums a day developed Maynard's. Their nurses who developed diabetes and obesity ate on average five or more wine gums a day. None of their nurses who ate two or fewer developed diabetes. So yeah, exactly, Megan. They've they you know they've gone to some effort. They've looked back over 15 years. Recall bias again, like Lucy said, is that necessarily going to be as accurate as as you would uh, expect? You know, can you remember 10 years ago how many wine gums a day you were eating? Okay. Um, and again, you know, it says in London, you know, was this an affluent area? Were these uh, nurses who were otherwise fit? What were their age groups, etc. 60-year-old research nurse in Scotland has never eaten a single wine gum, never developed Maynard. She does have diabetes, though. So, yeah, I think you all projected this quite quickly as a case study, uh, as a case report, sorry. So, I mean, there, there isn't much there, is there? Uh, well done for her. But, um, as, you know, as, as policy, it's not useful, is it? And um, she still ended up having diabetes. And I think that shows, you know, that... Uh, Diabetes is still prevalent um, even if you don't eat wine gums. We then had a meta-analysis of RCTs in the USA, and I think Lucy, you pointed out that um, you know the USA is that transferable. You know, uh, is the wine gum recipe the same over in the USA as it is over here, etc., etc.? Are there other lifestyle factors over there? You know, USA is known to have higher obesity and diabetes than here, although we're catching them up. So you know, that's all things to be think think about. Then we had two different studies, very similar. Um, in France and in Germany, um, one which recommended uh, two wine gums a day. The one in Germany recommends three wine gums a day. 
think, you know, Lucy, you were saying, you know, is it necessarily transferable? Are there other things going on? You know, was it in France, the south of France, a of a Mediterranean diet, you know, adding in wine gums, it's necessarily different to maybe a more urban deprived area, etc. You know, they're both Western European, but there are still different factors within that. And it's important to remember that, you know, ethnic diversity, we're a very international society now, especially in the West, in West of Europe, different areas will have different ethnic groups. Were these studies all of one ethnic group, etc.? So could there be other confounding factors that you need to think about? So it's always worth, you know, going beyond the headline. And yeah, yeah, I think the headline thing is really important, like Lucy said, I think, because the, the, as I think, going back to that research nurse in Scotland, when I was at university, they, they liked in exams to sort of throw up an ethical thing where they would have an actor playing a relative and they would show a, a made up Daily Mail article in front of you going, oh, look at this wonder dr drug that's being mentioned. Uh, I want that for my relative. And you know, to discuss that, you know, that's not research. Uh, and we already talked in previous sessions about the idea of a primary and secondary outcomes. You know, what's the study actually powered for that outcome? And this is something you find with things like statins, as I've already mentioned. You know, uh, a, a study could be powered uh, to look at cholesterol levels with statins, uh, and then find out that none of their um, uh, none of their participants got cancer. But that's a secondary outcome. It's not actually powered. You can't then go statins prevent cancer, but then that's often the thing that the tabloids will grab, and then that becomes the, the front. Uh, that becomes the headline. Yeah, so like Lucy said, there's, there's, uh, there are websites there that sort of debunk some of the headlines. I think that's important. So finally, a multi-center double-blind trial, uh, double-blind uh, randomized control trial in Europe, looking at two or more wine gums a day, offer no benefit of Maynard's for over 35, but increases the risk of diabetes by 1%. So yeah, were we part of that? That's the thing, you know, were we included in that randomized control trial? It sounds grand, but you know, was it? Europe's obviously a very large continent. Uh, were we included in that data? And that's important uh, before we start recommending it. So I think you've got there an idea of what it is like to sort of try and come up with guidelines um, and an appreciation that it is very difficult. And this is why it takes a long time. Uh, and why it constantly has to be reviewed because evidence changes and as it changes you have to be prepared to challenge and to, and to, um, and to change. Right then, so thank you very much guys. Our next session next month is on qualitative and quantitative data. I know Lucy is a, is a fan of qualitative data uh, and we'll be, analyze, we'll be looking at the differences between those. Uh, for this session, uh, we've covered a lot of information. Um, more information is available at the blog site. Follow this link to, uh, to takeorally.com. This podcast will be there. The slides will be there. Uh, we'll also have um, all the information that we've talked about and the links that we've mentioned all in there. So, you know, please check that out. And uh, obviously, take orally followers on Twitter. Um, so, yeah, just remember those things. And ultimately, I think if we use guidelines properly and we're smart about them and we have an appreciation of where they come from, we can ultimately be nice with our guidelines and do the right things for our patients. Okay, they are there to protect us, they are useful, uh, but ultimately, they're only as useful as the person who's following them. And you don't want to end up like Mario here. <laughs> yeah, falling over.
Thank you very much, everyone.